people and they throw them off, they segregate them off to a different part of the building, a different part of the life of the church, and they say, you are now in charge of the spiritual formation of these people. Here you go. And off they go, and nobody ever has to interact or see them again and so on. I may be playing out this stereotype to the extreme, but it is often what you see because what you never see is youth ministry in the Bible. What they did in Bible times is everyone was a part of the community. They all were a part of grafting each other in and raising each other up to know the Word of God and to walk according to the Word of God and so on. So we wanted to make sure that we see Brian not as that guy, but as a bridge, as a doorway to relationships, to friendships, and that we don't see students just as projects, but as people and potential friendships for us. That as they integrate into the life of the community here, the community would grow and change. And believe it or not, when you grow in those friendships with younger people or older people or whatever the dynamic is, you are benefited. You end up being the one who gets ministered to. And there's an opportunity that I don't want you to miss out on. So take Brian up on this challenge and take us up on the Amplify Challenge and whatever ministry challenge is before you because Philippians, the series we're going into now, plays off of this theme of partnership in a big way. Our title today is The Partnership of the Gospel and that's what it's all about. So I want to challenge you to see people as not projects but friendships. Not ministry to them, quote-unquote, but ministry among friends that we're making. And that's the reason I put it that way is because there's often a tendency to do otherwise. We tend to whittle people down or reduce them simply as souls to be saved or a ministry project to be undertaken. And when we do that, it's possible to feel good about ourselves because we can lend some money or do this here and there and somehow contribute to that ministry while still keeping those people at arm's length. And that is a tendency that shows up in ministry and missions all over the church in the world. It happens a lot. When I went to India as a young, just newly graduated from high school, 18-year-old, I uh, technically 19, I just had my birthday, uh, I, I joined up with Youth With a Mission, went to Hawaii, sounded like a good gig. I didn't know what I wanted to do or what college to go to, so I thought, you know what, I could do some missions work, and that'll do something in me. It'll grow some foundation in me. And so I remember getting off the plane in India and getting in the taxi ride, and the first thought I had was, God, I thank you that I was not born in India because nothing can prepare you for all the things that you take for granted, like traffic laws, when you are part of a mass of people moving 60 miles an hour in a taxi that's mere six inches away from a dump truck on one side and a rickshaw on the other, and nobody has any concept of lanes or signs or their stoplights, but you better be out of the road when it turns green because nobody's stopping for you. And you're swerving in and out in front of oncoming traffic and zooming back in, and it is straight out of the born identity, okay? Remember the driving scene, you know, where they just destroy this car? I mean, it's incredible. 
So instantly, I was very thankful to be an American. One day, I remember being told, we're going to go and visit a leper colony today. I've told you this story before if you've been here for a while, but it's been a while, so hopefully it'll be new to some of you. And I remember feeling like the last thing I want to do right now is go visit a leper colony. But I'm the missionary guy right now. I'm the minister here. The, you know, we're the missionary people who are going to go do ministry for those people. And so I'm going to try and, and feel like I'm doing something good for God while we go and endow ministry upon the leper colony. People with leprosy who are set apart from the rest of the community of the city and the families of, of their world. And, and unlike in Bible times, there is a cure or treatment program that they go through and they can live through leprosy, but they still remain in the colonies usually because they're outcasts of society. So we get there, and we had a little routine to go through, and there's like all these different houses and huts, and there's people, and they've got their bandages and their swollen fingers and noses and body parts missing and stuff, and it's, it's kind of weird, you know, and you're just feeling awkward and uncomfortable. And I remember um, going, and we had like a skit that we went through and some songs that we led on the guitar, and we did a, you know, a little talk, and it was my turn to do the talk that time. And, and in my mind, I'm thinking, man, the sooner that we can get out of here, the better. What I didn't expect is what happened next when a whole bunch of people from the leper colony who, who are listening to us suddenly got up and they're all excited and they grab their little hymn book that's all worn out in the, the Tamil language and they get up and they just start praising Jesus in their language way off key with all their hearts and passion and, and we're just caught off guard going, whoa. And then we had this opportunity to sit down and meet these people and this man sat down with me named Peter and he told me about his condition and he told me about how he had a son that he was so proud of who was going to this special school. And I knew he would probably rarely, if ever, see his son again. And he told me this. He said, when you spoke up there, it was like Jesus was talking to me through you. And he said, I will never stop praying for you every day for the rest of my life. Now, who felt kind of guilty right here. I'm feeling a bit uncomfortable at the moment, right? You know, these, and on all of a sudden, I'm seeing below the surface of these people. I'm seeing these are people I might actually like to get to know somewhat. Now, I don't think I had the mental wherewithal to really process what was happening in me at that time, and I still felt very uncomfortable and kind of just wanted to be gone and not have to deal with something God was stirring up inside of me. I want to quote from a, a little book on missions that Seth had forwarded to me, a friend of mine, as we were researching together, from a missionary couple who'd spent 20 years in the missions field, kind of like John and Gail Douglas here, and I wonder if they would say something similar. But the name of the book is called Friendship at the Margins. And the point of it is to talk about this tendency in which we tend to see, you know, the, the slideshows from the missions field and all the poor, decrepit people that they're ministering to and so on. But they said when your goal becomes friendship with this community and you don't see them as projects of ministry anymore, suddenly you don't want to show that slideshow because you realize if my friend was here and they knew I was showing this in this church, how would they feel about it? 
And questions like that start to arise. And they quoted this. They said, learning to see the so-called other as a friend increases our sensitivity to the reductionism, commodification, and manipulation that plague some versions of mission and ministry. Human beings who are not Christians are far more than potential converts. In our concern for reaching out with the gospel, we can unwittingly reduce the person to less than a whole being that God formed. When we shrink our interest in people to the possibilities of where their souls may spend eternity, it is easy to miss how God might already be working in and through a particular person. Another quote said, But as the friendships on the streets and the neighborhoods grew, we came to understand that we were not ministering to our friends, but in ministry among them. We ourselves were being ministered to as authentic and humanizing relationships emerged. Mission, then, is less about our efforts to help or evangelize them and more about how we can live into the kingdom of God together. It's by Christopher Hertz and Christine Pohl. We're going into this series on Philippians, and you're going to see this theme in the Apostle Paul. A little background. Philippi is this little Roman colony in the northeastern corner of what is today Greece, Macedonia at the time. It was the first city in Paul's Asian mission to receive the gospel and plant a church there. And it's kind of unique in that Philippi had really continued to grow in their faith and in their love and their ministry for one another, whereas a lot of other churches became kind of a mess. We preached through 1 Corinthians. Oh my word, that church had a lot of problems. Or Galatians, where they had adopted a, a hybrid view that says you still have to follow the law to be saved. And Paul was vehement with these people. But the Philippians, this letter has almost nothing but encouragement in it. Because these people, as far as we know, kind of got it right. In fact, they began to support Paul in his missions and were one of the only churches to do that. They also began to support the other churches that Paul was planting out of their own will and of their own motive. And at the time of writing, Paul was in prison, most likely in Rome, and the Philippians had sent a gift, probably material gift or comfort gift of some kind, through a man via a man named Epaphroditus. At some point, Epaphroditus had become deathly ill and he'd nearly died, but by God's grace, he'd recovered. In essence, this letter is a heartfelt thank you note to the church in Philippi, but it goes well beyond that. It's also one of the only letters in which Paul is not criticizing some major issue, although there is some quarreling going on that he does address. So I want to read Philippians 1 through 11. And I want to ask you, how do you think Paul feels about these people in this church that he had planted? Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints or holy ones in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day 
until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers, or partners is the Greek word, with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Let's pause and pray for a moment. Father, I just want to stop and recognize that this is your word that we're hearing, and I ask that you would speak to us through it and that we'd be receptive to hear it and even capture this spirit of friendship and affection and joy as we partner together in the gospel of Jesus. It's in your name I pray, amen. Just notice the language of this passage. I hold you in my heart. How I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. These people were not just ministry projects for Paul. They were very dear friends. Yes, Paul had ministered to them, but they were a major source of blessing to him as well. He had received something from them. The deepest friendships are often rooted in a commonality, common traits, common goals, commonly held interests, or a common purpose and vocation. So what held these friends together? What united them? And in Paul's words, it's that partnership in the gospel. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That word partnership is the word koinonia. It speaks to in, in that culture, business transactions, marital relationships, different kinds of partnerships, but it has a bigger connotation as a community of fellowship in the body of Christ defined by the self-giving love of Jesus Christ. Partnership, koinonia, in the gospel. And I want to explore this phrase a bit. The main reason for writing this letter is to thank the Philippians for their partnership in the gospel. But is it as simple as saying thank you for giving me money or for praying for me? Or does it go beyond that? And to understand that, I want to explore this idea of the gospel and this idea of partnership and how it changes us into that kind of a community. What is the gospel? The gospel is a word that gets thrown around in church a lot. It's all over your Bible. It's actually a very political term. It's the word evangelion from which we get the word evangelism. Good news. It's a proclamation. The same authors that I quoted briefly um, earlier wrote this about the term gospel. Typically, it refers to the overthrow of an established government, the proclamation of a victory in battle, or the return of the emperor. The concept, gospel, conjured up images of a regime change. That's what's in mind when you hear the word gospel, good news. A new regime is at hand, a new kingdom, a new Lord. For example, following Octavian, Caesar Augustus' defeat of Mark Antony and Cleopatra at the Battle of Actium, an announcement went out into the entire Roman Empire. Now begins the gospel of Augustus. 
the new golden age of Rome. And they minted a coin with the year one on it that says, you know, something Augustus, son of God, because he was son of Caesar or Julius Caesar, who was deified as God. So at the heart, the gospel of Jesus is the subversive claim that the risen Jesus Christ has become the true ruler of this earth, not Caesar, and not the president, and not a dictator or republic. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. That's the gospel. But Paul claims that within this announcement, the content of that message and how Jesus has become Lord represents God's gift to mankind that releases us from a bondage to a new kind of freedom and makes us a new kind of people, and it actually saves people. That's the claim of Romans 1, that within this gospel message is the power for salvation for all people who believe, first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles, Romans 1.16. It's a power that changes the world. How? The answer is found in the means by which Jesus has become Lord and how that changes our hearts. And when renewed hearts are changed, they change the world. Philippians 2, 5-11 through 11, is the great Christ hymn. We read it last week. It is, in a nutshell, the gospel. And what it is saying is that Jesus has become Lord by reversing the sin of Adam, canceling the curse of sin, and restoring human beings to their intended position before God. Remember, the serpent tempted Adam and Eve by saying, did God say you will surely die? No, no, no. God knows that when you eat of this tree, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. They counted equality with God a thing to be grasped, and so they grasped that fruit, and we, their children, have been doing the same thing ever since grasping at equality with God, calling the shots for our own lives, defining good and evil on our own terms. So the hymn goes like this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the gospel. That Jesus was not only God, but that he became the most fully human being the world has ever seen. One who resisted the temptation of Adam and subjected himself to his father's lordship, unlike anyone else. Therefore, he is now the true Lord of this earth. Jesus became a servant and was exalted as the most holy one. Paul introduces the letter to the Philippians with a common greeting, but he changes it a little bit. Normally he would say, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. But today he says, Paul and Timothy, slaves, servants of Jesus Christ. 
to the holy ones, the exalted ones, the set-apart ones, the saints who are in Christ at Philippi. You can see the message of the Christ hymn at the very beginning of the letter to the Philippians, and it keeps recurring all the way throughout. That message is the center of the whole book. One of my commentaries put it this way, the title of servants for himself and Timothy points to Paul's view of relationships in Christ. And this is the key. This is the key to partnership in the gospel. When believers in Christ freely and joyfully accept the position of servants of Christ Jesus, they will be united and effective in service. Now, this is a colony that prized their Roman citizenship, their status. We see that in Acts chapter 16, when Paul and Silas are mistreated, and then afterwards the authorities have to apologize to them because they realize they had beaten a Roman citizen. Roman citizens didn't have to pay taxes. So there's this huge quality of being a Roman citizen. But nobody would want to be a servant. Nobody would want to be a bondservant. Nobody would want to be a slave. And yet, what this is saying is that by calling yourself a servant, as Christ called him a servant, what we're doing is we're saying we are united in this, that we hold nothing over one another. There's no envy or rivalry or status that divides us. And what are servants? What do they have in common? Nothing except that they serve the will of their master together. There is no hierarchy. There is no anything but this common goal that we serve the master as servants. And so we do it in a united way without envy or rivalry or selfish ambition. Going on it says, but they will thrive when friends humbly serve each other before looking out for their own interests. At the beginning of this letter, Paul exemplifies the attitude he calls for all believers to have, the attitude of the one who accepted the form of a slave. So he says, Paul and Silas, or Paul and Timothy, servants, slaves of Christ Jesus, to the holy ones. And you can read Ephesians 1 for a long description of what is captured in that title of holy ones, seated with Jesus at the right hand of the Father, recipients of a name, of adoption as legitimate sons of the Father, who is the owner of all things and will endow upon his children an inheritance of all things. Everything that is coming to the sons, to the daughters, because of the Father. This is the holy one. So who are the holy ones? And you'll notice, maybe you picked it up as we read, but Paul uses the word all a lot. It gets really repetitive. All of God's holy people, with the saints, with the, the overseers and the deacons, not the leaders of the church and maybe some of the really good Christians in there. But all of the people are the holy ones of God if they've entrusted their lives to Christ. They are holy. That simply means that they're separated out from evil and consecrated to fulfill God's purposes. So he repeats that word all a lot. I thank my God, uh, always making every prayer of mine for you all, making every prayer with joy in partnership with the gospel, to all the saints. It's right for me to feel about this way for you all 
For you are all partakers, partners with me of grace. And so on. The point, Paul's affection isn't for just a few special people or his favorite people. Not just the leaders. It even includes Iodia and Syntyche, as we'll read later, the women who are quarreling in the church. Because the title Holy One isn't reserved for just extra good and special people. In Christ Jesus, all God's people are holy. And their holiness is inherent in their calling and position in Christ, not by their good works. Not because they've earned some special order or standing before God. Paul shows that he is promoting the unity of all rather than recognizing any social or moral distinctions. Had I gone into that leper colony in India, viewing myself as a slave of Christ, emptied of any privilege or American status or whatever I may have that endows me with some higher standing over those people who can't even obey or make good traffic laws, who are in a leper colony, who probably aren't very well educated. This is my naive mind thinking. Had I approached them as a slave of Christ, coming to see the holy ones of God, maybe my mind would have been opened a little differently. Maybe I would have been open to the possibility that God might want to minister to me through friendship that is created across these cultural barriers. Maybe I could have felt and seen something different. What was the extent then of this partnership in the gospel? What did it entail? It says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers, and the same word koinonia is in the root of that, partners, with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. They all partner with Christ by virtue of the fact that they share the same grace of Jesus Christ. That means that who are the partners in the gospel? Only the ones who volunteer at Amplify? Only ones who have got the t-shirts? Only the ones who preach on Sundays? No. The whole community are partners in the grace of God and partners, therefore, in the gospel of Christ. Friends. The Quakers like to put it that way. Got some Quakers friends here. We go to Quaker Cove for our camp, right? They capitalize on this. Uh, one of my commentaries wrote this. It said, The Philippians actively participated in Paul's mission to spread the gospel by their prayers for him in his affliction, by their suffering for their faith in Christ, in, for their own faith in Christ, in the face of opposition, by their radiant witness, by the mission of Epaphroditus on the, their behalf to care for Paul's needs while in prison and by their regular financial support of Paul. It is important to appreciate the breadth of the Philippians' involvement in this par partnership in the gospel so that it is not reduced either to, on the one hand, just belief in the message of salvation in Christ, or, on the other hand, their financial support of Paul's mission to preach the gospel. In other words, it's not just, well, we send money to our missionaries, so we're partners in Christ. It's so easy to say, hey, I'm so glad we have missionaries so I don't have to deal with those kinds of people. But what are we missing out on when we do that? 
What difference in the kingdom or in our own lives or the friendships we might build that might actually change us the way Paul was blessed and changed by the community he had with these people, with the Philippians? Had he simply viewed them as a project? Had he reduced the Philippians to an inclusive them whose souls need to be saved? He would have missed out on the incredible joy and the sustained mutual friendship and partnership that they had in Christ with these people. He would not have had their prayers or the visit from Epaphroditus, the sense that their heart's burden cares for him. He would have been alone. In the end, because Paul viewed himself as a servant, a slave of Jesus, he was able to open himself up to being ministered to and not just being a minister. Now we might say, well, maybe they were just naturally likable people. Maybe they weren't socially awkward or different social classes like a leper colony or middle schoolers. Um, Maybe it was just easy to connect and they got it, they clicked, they went with it and they said, yeah, we're in, we'll stick with you on this. Awesome, buddies. Who were the Philippian church and who was Paul? In Acts chapter 16, we read about the first three converts in the church at Philippi. First, a wealthy merchant woman named Lydia who dealt in fine high-quality fabrics made of purple linens. And she would go to where the the Jews would go because they didn't have a synagogue outside the city by a river to pray. And she was a Gentile, but she was learning Jewish ways and believing in that God. So Paul meets them, and, and she comes into contact, and the Spirit opens her up through a conversation to be able to receive the Lord, and she opens her home to this new church. Secondly, We see a slave girl, totally different social dynamic, probably uneducated. Uh, This woman is a demoniac. She's possessed, and there are people who own her, a a couple people who are traveling around with her because they can use her as a fortune teller and get paid for it. So she's following Paul and Cyrus around, saying, Silas around, saying, these men are messengers from the Most High God. And so finally, Paul has enough of it, and he turns around, and he casts this demon out of her, but her owners get really angry because they just lost their source of income, and they incite a riot, and Paul and Silas get beaten and thrown into prison. And that's where we meet our third convert to the church in Philippi. That's listed anyway. A blue-collar Roman soldier. It's noted that patriotism is really big in this Roman colony of Philippi. Here's a guy who probably served as a soldier and retired as a jail guard. And when God caused the earth to quake and all the shackles to come loose of all the prisoners in the prison, he thought that they had escaped and he withdrew his sword as a faithful Roman soldier and was about to end his own life when Paul interrupted and said, don't do that, we're still here. And they began to minister to him, and he invited them into their homes, and he and his whole household were baptized, and the next day he, he, uh, he got them kind of freed, and the community had to apologize to them for mistreating them as Roman soldiers, or, uh, citizens, and so on. So you have these three people from three very different social classes who would have otherwise never come into community with each other, for one thing. 
And that's what the church is made up of. People who would never have come into community with each other otherwise except for the gospel. But who is Paul? Okay, Paul's going to later in the book, he's going to go about this proclamation of who he was. A Pharisee of Pharisees. As to the law, perfect. Zealous for the Lord. Even persecuting Christians. Even approving of their deaths and so on. So Paul would have grown up without a doubt having memorized a very common Jewish prayer. Lord, I thank you that I was not born a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. He probably would have woke up reciting it in the morning. Thank you that I was not born in India. Thank you that I am not a middle schooler. Thank you that I am not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. And who are these people who have not only a partnership, but a deep friendship, who Paul was able to not just treat as a ministry project, but friends to be had, ministry to be shared among each other, not me to you, but among each other in the community of God, who God was calling to himself as he revealed it to Paul. A woman, a slave, and a Gentile. What had to happen in Paul's heart to open him up to receiving these people as his friends, as his partners, as the companions whom his heart longed for dearly? What change had to occur? The gospel. The gospel affected in his own life. And the gospel affected in your life if you're willing, to receive that the King of Kings did not ever once say, Lord, I thank you that I did not have to go down and be born into his family or her family, but emptied himself, became a servant of yourself and your family and your status and your position became the only truly human being who would resist the urge to grasp equality with God and gave himself up for us all, offering forgiveness for your sins and a free way to come back into relationship with your heavenly Father through his death on the cross and is raised at the right hand of God, opening a doorway for you to come in as a son or daughter of the King. When we realize the depth to which we don't deserve this, and the depth of the grace that has been given to us, that changes our hearts. Not only towards God, but towards other people. Because the big complaint is, religion is the cause of all division and violence in the world today. And it's mostly true. Because most of the time, when you think you have the truth, it's easy to judge those people who need to think like we do, and to stereotype them and put them in a box. But when the highest ethic of your faith is that God himself became human and died for the forgiveness of his enemies and that we are all sinners deserving of wrath, then if anything, I believe that those other people could in fact be more morally righteous than myself. The only difference is that I've recognized my own depravity and needed the gospel of Jesus in my life to free me. 
So this is my challenge to you. Do you view view people as projects or people? Those for whom we should minister or potential friends among whom ministry is done as the gospel shapes a new community? Do you know what it is to be a partner in the gospel? Are you willing to not simply say, good thing our church has something for middle schoolers so that I don't have to get involved. But to say, you know what? There's a potential change in my community if I partner in the gospel with the efforts of this church to build ministry among a new kind of community whose relationships with these younger people I could benefit from as I benefit them in the Lord. That's a completely different perspective and one that we all need to adopt. It may not be being a counselor for you. It may be signing up with Linda to simply pray or to give or to do whatever you can do. We see the way that the Philippians supported Paul in this way. But it wasn't just about giving It wasn't just about praying. It was about a new kind of friendship, a partnership in a new kingdom. And so with that, I want to close and I want to have us all stand up and I want to invite you to have the same attitude of a servant like Jesus. And we're going to, I'm going to do a a repeat after me as we quote the end of this passage for each other for the church here in this building in Anacorta. So would you stand up with me? And uh, actually, worship team, we're going to have Jay and Linda come up next, so you guys might not want to get started yet. Um, (laughs) So I want you to repeat after me and have this mind for your church community and all those who could potentially be here who are not here yet. Repeat after me. It is right for me to feel this way about you. It is right for me to feel this way about you. Oh. Because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partners, partakers with me of grace. For you are all partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. To the glory and praise of God. All right, you can be seated. And I want to invite Jane Linda to come on up here along with... Uh,